You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, the official podcast of FlashOfSteel.com. I am your host, Troy Goodfellow, and with me today is my one reliable panelist, freelance writer Tom Chick. Hello. Uh, Troy, can I get you a coffee? Yes. Since it's just, awesome. Yeah, I don't want to burden you with getting coffees for all of us. but since It's, it's just, much easier when it's just you and I for me to make the coffee. Do you take sugar in it? It's an espresso. It's kind of bitter. No, well. I, I take my espresso completely straight or neat. Good man, whatever, good man. Whatever the, whatever the expression is for uh, fancy pants coffee. Well, yeah, that's you said exactly the right thing. It's like somebody who drinks a martini without even specifying whether it's gin or vodka because they know that it's gin. Of course. Same with espresso. If you're you, you're not putting sugar and junk in there, so good man. All right, I'm glad we're seeing eye to eye on this. It's a good. It's a. It's an auspicious early start for this podcast. Yes, I love a good cup of coffee. I want to open with an apology uh, to listeners of last week for the sound quality. Uh, it was a little bit off for a number of reasons. Uh, our guest Mark Walker was on a satellite connection that we tested earlier in the day sounded perfect and then when all of us were on the connection it sounded terrible so we had to phone him we had to bring him in on a phone call which somehow transported my voice three seconds into the future so i spoke much more than turned out on the podcast just uh the recording ended up having my voice overlap a lot of conversation so that had to be edited out leading to a podcast that was probably a bit confusing in parts. It sounds a bit like you had us on a three-second delay in in case we, like, let loose with a torrent of profanity so that you could, you know, hit a mute button or something. There were many times I wanted to hit a mute button, but <laughs> not uh, profanity-related. Uh, uh, this week, we have, it's just you and me, Tom, and we're going to talk about something we've been wanting to talk about for a while, and it's a shame that Julian can't join us right now. We might be able to bring him in later, because uh, he suggested this topic, and it's really a good topic, and that is how uh, strategy game designers br- bring in the naval element into strategy games. Both at the st- I want to talk about this both at the strategic level. Uh, in a grand strategy game, how do you balance the power of navies against, you know, where all the fun stuff is happening on the land, and also the tactical level, uh, making uh, naval combat itself interesting? Um, well, and we've is, actually talked a bit about this before. I mean, this is this is certainly a, a subject that we've touched on because it comes up in a lot of discussions of, you know, World War II or real-time strategy games. Uh, this has sort of been a subtopic for a lot of the things that we've discussed. It has. It's been a recurring theme, and I think it is good that we devote an, I, we devote an hour to it uh, because you can see the approach in so many different ways and within the same genre. Grand strategy games, it's approached in very unique ways depending on the designer and the era and real-time strategy games as well. Uh, some do naval make naval combat too powerful. Some make it unimportant. Um and some just do some really weird ass stuff. Uh, now, before it. we before we get too far, Troy, I want to ask you a question. This is you can ask any strategy gamer this question, assuming they're over thirty, and this will say a lot about them. So, are you ready for this, Troy? This is like a personality test. Here we go. Are you more of a perfect general kind of a guy, or more of a lost admiral kind of a guy? I think I'm a lost admiral guy. Now you know these are the you know you know that I'm talking about these classic QQP war games, right? Of course, of course yeah. I do. 
and I always gravitated towards Lost Admiral. I mean, Perfect General was fine and, you know, and all that stuff. But, but Lost Admiral, you can do so much cool, clever stuff with naval combat. And I think, like, one of the earliest instances of that is the difference between playing Perfect General and the Lost Admiral. So, why don't you, elab- why, why don't you elaborate on that? Uh, well, it, the, the, the cool thing about the ocean is that it is quite literally more layered than anywhere else you fight battles. So you can be underwater, you can be on the water, and you can be in the air. Uh, and if I did, did Lost Admiral have air power? There must have been carriers in that game, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure there were. Yeah. So, uh, so that, that, I think, right, right off the bat, that's one of the, uh, advantages that naval warfare has over ground warfare. Until we start perfecting, like, mole tanks. <laughs> I don't know, you know, then I, I think uh, there's always going to be something cooler about War at Sea. Uh, and Lost Admiral, to me, was a game that sort of highlighted that. In Perfect General, you can have a light tank or a heavy tank and artillery, blah, 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 whatever. Uh, but when you when you throw submarines into the equation, I think it's instantly 30% cooler. Right. But that only works in the modern era, right? Well, you know, that's that is, exactly. But another cool thing, when we talked about... Uh, some at some point in the the conversation about maybe this was specifically about naval warfare. Was it about submarines? Maybe it was about submarine sims. About oh no, I know what it's about. When we talked about the awesomeness of World War II, how there were so many different technologies just on the cusp of being developed and executed. You know, naval warfare has had this really the the stages of dramatic technological advances from sailing ships to steam engines to U-boats to, I guess right now we're in the era of air power. Right. Uh, so, so that right there, even, so yeah, there was, there was even the point before U-boats, there was this awesome uh, progression of different powers of sailing ships. Uh, and, and up to that, you get, I guess, the steam engines. Um, but yeah, so even before, but th- that is a challenge, though, is how do you make naval combat interesting before all this cool modern stuff gets folded in? Right, because one of my one of the essential problems with naval combat and making it interesting at a tactical level is that it's flat. There aren't forests, there aren't hills, there aren't rivers to cross. Everyone's on the same level, and in right, many really ways, on the tactical right at yeah. the tactical level of combat, you're yeah. right. And in many ways, you know, that makes it kind of equal. You know, it's you can't just hunker down in a, in a defensive position. Uh, you have to go out there and get your guns in the right position. You actually have to move stuff. You can't just sit in your trench and wait. Uh, but that also is very challenging for designers to make it interesting because you don't have the element of surprise or the element of using the terrain to your advantage. Um, unless I mean, there's some different – I mean, if it's a, a coastal combat, you can make the argument uh, that you can use uh, – inlets to your advantage, I suppose. But, you know, wide open water combat, um, it's all about moving the ships um, on a flat board. And in lieu, though, of terrain, you do have, at least in the age of sail, you know, the, the importance of wind, mm-hmm. of, of, of having, it's almost like a flight sim where altitude is, the, is of supreme importance because you right. convert that altitude into a velocity speed. I don't know. Someone who knows about physics could say it better. But altitude is hugely important in a flight sim. Being upwind is hugely important in an age of sail game. So that right. kind of stands in for terrain in a way. Uh, one of the things that I, the first game I can think of that did this is maybe Pirates of the Burning Sea. There were probably others, but 
uh, one of the ways to make Age of Sail combat interesting, where you don't have things like terrain and, and uh, is these kind of almost like MMO type spell powers. Because in an Age of Sail game, your dudes are loading the cannons, they shoot it, and there's it's the equivalent of a mandatory cooldown time, like in an MMO where you wait for your spell to refresh. Right. Uh, so one of the things that Pirates of the Burning Sea did, and East India Company most recently did as well, is folding in these sort of whimsical spell powers uh, as a way of making the sailing ship have more dynamic abilities. Like you can have your captain's morale boost give you a burst of speed, or you can take less damage for a period of time. Um, so I, I like seeing that added into sailing ship games, a sort of more whimsical approach. Uh-huh. And pirates did that in a way, not with the spell powers, but certainly the the fast, easy tactical combat of Sid Meier's pirates games made the whole thing more arcadey. Right, plus you could customize your ship to a certain extent. Uh, you, went to right. certain, you could say, well, I need better sails, so I'll find the place with best sails. Right. Uh, eventually you'd have all the best everything, so it wouldn't matter all that much. Um, it was a nice, simple game. I I liked that, uh, but it was really wasn't. I consider I wouldn't really consider that a strategy game or even a. I suppose it's kind of a, a mini arcade strategy. Watch my thingy. Pirates was all things to all people, Troy. Yeah, as, as well. <laughs> it should. I I think it. I think it. The more I play it, the more I think it may be Sid Meier's best game. Whoa, 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 whoa! Okay, I'm not going to go there with you, but okay. I mean the the original, the, the, his original design. I'm. I'm going to go with the, his most his most original and his best design. All right. Okay. Okay. Uh, did you play much pirate, any Pirate to the Burning Sea? You you, you don't, I don't think you're a big MMO guy. You might. I'm be- not a big MMO guy. Okay. No, just kind of uh, disappointing. Now that there's going to be a World of Warcraft magazine, um, I could have actually gotten some more work. Uh, you'll but have to start, you'll have to start playing World of Warcraft. It doesn't yeah. have naval combat, though. I should warn you. It it doesn't, uh, which is disappointing, because it doesn't have hobbits, and hobbits were the masters of the sea. <laughs> the uh, but the Pirates of Burning Sea, I played it at um, E3, a couple, no, a GDC a few years ago, uh, at a preview build I saw in action. They had a really nice tactical combat system in that it, it was a good balance of the sort of slow strategic sort of cerebral element of sailing ship battle. It was a mix of that was one third of it. And then sort of the spectacle of splintering masts and cannons and my cat. Hi. The cat loved Pirates of the Burning Sea, by the way. It was one of his favorites. And then they folded in these these sort of whimsical MMO spell powers. Uh, So uh, East India Company was sort of a scaled down version of that. I'm going to pick yeah. up the cat here and make him okay there. Uh, it was, it was almost the, it was almost half-hearted. Uh, East India Company's attempt to work that in because you know maybe a third of your generals would have those, and it took a long time for them to accumulate much experience. Um, and they so there was a very good chance they would end up getting ambushed and killed by a pirate. And they would die of old age. Yeah, <laughs> you know that would kind of suck. Right. <laughs> Hire the sixty-year-old captain who's this, has this super shot, and he dies the next year. <laughs> uh, he was very cool while he's shooting, but when uh, they uh, they they gussied up. I don't know if you've seen it since the patch. I haven't myself, but I've certainly uh, read some of the changes they've made. They've really gussied. They've they've 
addressed some complaints, Troy, that you and I had with naval combat. Namely, in East India Company, there's now an adjustable speed during the tactical battles, which is huge because in Age of Sail, so much of it is waiting for your ship to get into position and, and all of that jockeying for position upwind and whatnot. So there's now adjustable uh, time scale, and, and now that they have an adjustable time scale in the tactical battles, something that they weren't doing before they had that is battles begin with ships farther apart. Which, when when you and I were playing at Troy in a naval battle in East India Company, the ships would start just p- practically in each other's laps. I mean, it was ridiculous. The battle starts, and you are literally within firing range of another ship, uh, yeah. and that really compromised a lot of what is unique and attractive about Age of Sail combat. Uh, so I, I haven't looked at it, but it seems that they've uh, addressed a lot of problems that game had. I mean, that's um, the real thing with the tactical uh, naval war games, is you have to find a way to give the player time to put their ships into position. I've called it before this, the, 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 this, this dance that ships have to do. Uh, to separate fleets and get your guns facing, crossing the T is, of course, the perfect way to do it, the technical naval term, where you have full broadsides uh, for all your ships running against theirs uh, vertically. And it's beautiful, and it never happens. Uh, By the way, I keep, I keep meaning to steal that, and I keep forgetting your reference to calling it a dance, because that's very well put. It's definitely about partners moving in reaction to each other. Uh, it's conflict-oriented, but it's, it's very much a dance. So well, let me write just, that down. I want to steal reference to naval combat as... Dancing. Okay, there. In naval combat is the original battle dance. <laughs> if you are caught battle dancing, Troy, you know what will happen to you. You will be I, arrested and sent I to jail. I might be arrested, yes. No, no might about it. If you are caught, you will be. Uh, but yes, that's very nice. It is the original battle dancing, isn't it? Uh, you had blogged about something that uh, I... Everyone who listens to this podcast probably reads your blog, but on the off chance that some people come to this podcast without reading the blog, talk a little bit about uh, this, and I'm going to forget the name. There's some sailing, it sounded like a turn-based sailing ship combat game that you were talking about, where the wind can make your ship drift. What was that? Was, this, what? this is the, oh, you, you, you played Crown of Glory with Bruce. Uh, oh, it's com- the naval combat part of Crown of Glory. The the, the new edition has a naval combat version. The Empress okay. edition just introduced tactical naval combat. They always had uh, land combat in it, and the land engine's been improved a little bit. And the game's is it's better than it was. I'm still not sold in the entire package, but I am really taken uh, with their simple hex-based uh, naval uh, war game engine. Uh, you have the two fleets, and you have a choice, and you. You could always do before this quick battle thing, which I never really understood. Uh, but in the full battle, two fleets meet, and you get to choose at, at what distance you want to engage. Now, if you have a huge advantage in ships, you want to engage really close, because you want to get those your guns against their smaller fleet as quickly as possible. If you've got a smaller fleet, you want to engage further out, so you can take advantage of getting your best ships into position. But the thing that I highlighted, and I liked best about it, was how it put what they call inertia and what I call momentum, I guess they're the same thing, into the game. And I think this is really hard in a turn-based naval combat game. How do you give the player control over their ships, but not so much control that wind becomes meaningless? 
Mm-hmm. Now, one way to do this is to give ships fewer action points, fewer moves if they're going against the wind, more if they're going with the wind. That still makes it very easy to turn your ship. Um, what they do is there's a chance that your ship will drift uh, with the wind. And the more damaged your sails are or fewer crew you have or what have you, the more likely it is you'll have no control of your ship at all. Uh, so there's an incentive to keep your ships from getting too damaged because as they get damaged, they can still fight, but you might not be able to decide where they fight. And it makes the entire combat very interesting because you have to plan a couple of turns ahead knowing you can take advantage of the wind to move your ship into the right position. So you can plan a turn well ahead of the time you have to, to make it. Um, and it's it still plays pretty slow, just like your turn-based uh, war game does. But it is, as I said in the post, it is a game I'd like, an engine I'd like to see separated. I'd like to just play that war game mm-hmm. that was just cut off in the grand strategy part altogether. I'd like to see a Trafalgar with that. I'd like to see a Battle of the Nile with that. Um, it's simple. It's clear. The ship variety matters. There's morale of the men. If you end up killing the captain with your ship, with your shots, you know, you do serious damage to the enemy morale. Ships explode. They're fighting a battle against the British, and one of my ships exploded, and it took out two other ships, and four more caught fire. Uh-huh. Uh, led to a huge... <laughs> wasn't it, but they, they weren't just mine. It was so, two British and three mine. It was a real mess. Uh <laughs> So the crews had to put the fires out, and you lose action points doing that. Uh, it's really a nice system. And, what this uh, makes me think of, Troy, is I, I wish that you you can't do this in a real-time strategy game, but I wish someone would. It sounds like this game has really captured how being helpless can be a big part of a, of a battle at sea in the Age of Sail. Uh, yes. How you are at the mercy of things like the wind. Uh, the way that Normally, a real-time strategy game does this because you can't take control of the unit away from the player. That's like a no-no in a real-time strategy game. Right. Instead, what they do is they just control the speed of your ship. You know, if your sails get shredded by grape shot, your ship can only go so fast. And even if it's going like straight up wind, it can still move and you can give it orders, but it'll only go so fast. You know, there's no drifting. Uh, or if your crew gets, you know, if a certain number of them get killed you simply reload guns more slowly. Uh, right. This, this, so I really like that this seems to capture the helplessness that can happen in a battle at sea when you are at the mercy of elements like fire and wind. Uh, I mean, it's hard for me to recommend uh, Crown of Glory Emperor's Edition just absolutely uh, because it still has some issues with the way they integrate the strategy and the tactics and the diplomacy, and it still has this big-ass manual uh, that I have to digest because so much has changed. But... Uh, if you do want to see where uh, that they understand that uh, Western Civ developers understand naval combat, and what makes me curious, the curious thing about this is their land war game, which they've been working on for three, four years, is nowhere near as advanced or as interesting as their naval game. Mm. Um, I don't know why that is. Uh, maybe because they were it was already there, so they can only make it slightly better. Whereas this is an entirely new part of the game, so they can mm-hmm. be creative with it. Uh, I'll have to ask uh, Gil Renberg that. He's one of the lead designers. Um, and I know that, uh, I mean, I wasn't a huge fan of the original game. I know Bruce hated it, and you weren't very keen on it either, as I as well. Um, you weren't very keen either, I believe. I was a little out of my depth. Right. <laughs> that was the Tom versus Bruce that Bruce won. 
Uh, yeah, I, I think that might have been one of the rare occasions there. <laughs> I, I should take a screenshot of it in action and put it up on the blog. Uh, maybe it'll be at the bottom uh, of this podcast. Now, let's talk a bit about uh, when, to my mind, uh, naval combat gets a little more interesting and easier to model. Uh, and that is, of course, in the modern era, yep. when we have, for instance, submarines, like we were talking about Lost Admiral. Uh, one of my earliest video games, and I don't know if this, and I know you'll agree with me here, Troy, I know you were a fan of this, what well, was Harpoon? which was mm-hmm. naval warfare as this high-tech cat and mouse, uh, which, again, instead of being at the mercy of things like, like wind and fire, you were at the mercy of things like passive emissions and uh, you know the, the range of an Exocet missile or something. Uh, so that, that is, that's where naval warfare, for me, becomes particularly compelling uh, because it's, a, it's still got this sort of mystery to it and all that cat and mouse and stalking and where is a target and is this a... You know, you, you used to be able to detect a ship, but you would have, or a submarine, instead of seeing it as a location on a map, you would get an area, and you just know that it's somewhere in that area. And it would be more risky to maybe go to active emissions to try to pinpoint its location, or do you fire a weapon uh, to search that area? Uh, but the Harpoon games were hugely formative for my appreciation of naval combat. Uh, mine as well. There were one of the games that I was first addicted to heavily um, and was also my first lesson in uh, read the scenario information uh, because there was an Indian, was an Indian Ocean scenario. I had a friend uh, in college who he and I were both huge Harpoon fans. I just loaded up this one scenario. I knew he'd played it, so I didn't uh, bother reading the scenario notes. And he said, oh, yeah, there's an American battle fleet uh, way down there to the south. You just got to go take it out. He was <laughs> lying to me. <laughs> in fact, the entire the entire mission is about uh, there's an American Sea Wolf submarine, and that's all the Americans have. So here I am, ignoring uh, the anti sub game. The next thing I know, there are like eight torpedoes in the middle of my fleet. You you Canadians are so gullible. I am. A, I I was gullible. <laughs> he, I thought he was my friend, uh, and it, but it really taught there was that's. Harpoon really captured the terror of one submarine in the middle of a fleet. Yes, yes. It was hard to do. Uh, I mean, if you could catch the subs, that's great. But, man, if you've that first torpedo shot right at your carrier. And, and can I make an observation about why I think Harpoon was so effective? It's the same sure. reason that certain horror movies are effective in that it doesn't show you the monster. That is left to your imagination, you know. Harpoon isn't it, it, I, the later harpoons did this, and I thought it was a huge tactical error. But the original harpoon wasn't concerned with the graphical representation of, of a submarine. Uh, the submarine was a readout on a display, and any real-world analog to that was in your imagination. Uh, it's like the best horror movies just sort of suggest the monster, because once you see it, you know everything about it. But I love that aspect of harpoon, and it makes me think, Troy, of what I feel is one of Stephen. This is going to sound like such a tangent, but <laughs> Harpoon mate reminds me of what I feel is one of Steven Spielberg's most brilliant filmed sequences. You know, everybody remembers like the T Rex attack and you know Quint getting eaten in Jaws, and those are all famous bits from Steven Spielberg's movies. But I think one of his most brilliant scenes is a, is a handful of minutes, maybe 
four men in a room looking at a display talking. Do, do you know what scene I'm talking about? This is going to be a little movie trivia thing here. It, it's, uh, no. So if you've seen Close Encounters of the Third Kind recently, there's a sequence where an airline pilot calls into the air traffic control tower, and he's, he's seen one of the UFOs. And he's communicating it to the, the tower. The tower sees it on radar. And it's just the scene doesn't ever show what the airline pilot sees. You just hear his voice. The scene is entirely set in front of this air traffic control, uh, this, this array of displays, and it's the dudes talking. And half the stuff is technical stuff. And you, you just hear in the tone of their voice what's going on. But, but Harpoon always managed to capture that for me is that through these displays, it's what's going on on the other side of the display. And you paint that with your imagination. And the display is all you see. Uh, it's, and it's kind of like hiding the monster in smoke or fog. Uh, but when you talked about the terror of a lone submarine, it just made me think of all that. Um, it's a great game, and they uh, re-released the classic edition, I suppose, uh, last year. Matrix did, and it still it still holds up pretty well. The AI was never very good. Yeah, I guess it was probably all like canned behaviors in the scenarios, wasn't it? I would imagine. For the most part, they had predictable routes. Um, it was quite easy to uh, inter- to figure out when when they're playing where their plane patrols would be, and you can get your Tomcats up or your MiG twenty nines or whoever you were playing. God, and it's all that awesome Cold War nostalgia, isn't it? You just mentioning Tomcats, I think of that. Wow. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, those were the days. <laughs> yeah, when all we had to worry about was nuclear annihilation. <laughs> it was so much easier back then. <laughs> I read, so did you? I I don't know that, and I, I'm afraid this probably says a lot about me. But I don't know that I could go back to Harpoon. Did Did you try it much? Like, did you just boot it up and fiddle with it, or did you try to play it much in earnest? I've played it. Uh, I usually play it once a month. I take a look at it. Uh, you know, if something pops up in the news, and hey, wouldn't it? What would have had something like uh, Iran pops up? Then so there's a lot of good Iranian scenarios. <laughs> and uh, Indian, you will explode in minutes. That would make an awesome scenario. <laughs> uh, so I often boot it up, and I give it a look, and I, if I want, instead of going to Wikipedia to figure out, you know, how powerful a Canadian frigate is, I'll go on a harpoon and see how powerful a Canadian wait, frigate wait, is. Wait, hold on, hold on. You people have frigates? Is that allowed? Canada's all kind of- yeah, Canada built a whole bunch of frigates. Now, when Started, you say frigate, is this like a bass boat, or is this like a real frigate? This is a real frigate. <laughs> I know, it's sad. I'm just trying to bait our Canadian listeners. I'm a Canadian host. I can cut you off. It's true. Good point. You're, you do have your finger on the button. Uh, one, th- I have a game. So I have, I have 80 billion computer games in my house, because I do this for a living. Uh, most of them live in a closet. However... I have a shelf of the games that I think are good enough to not be relegated to the closet. And one, <laughs> one such game that sits on that shelf, but that I'm ashamed to say is still in plastic wrap, is from a few years ago. It was a reissue of SSG's, I think it's just called Carriers at War. Uh, and that, would, that, that sounds like such a pedestrian yeah. name, but I guess that's what it was called. Does that ring a bell? It was. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. And th- that, for me, captured this awesome pre-harpoon cat and mouse of carrier combat where you send out your patrols and, and you know, a lot of it was managing 
when you are re- refueling and resupplying your planes, because, I don't know, was it Midway or something? You might know this, where we managed to catch, I don't know, maybe we were caught, but at any rate, if you caught a carrier with all of its planes on deck being refueled, it was screwed, because it, you know, it was vulnerable to, to being bombed then. So there's all this, like, it's like all logistics and scheduling and, and patrol points. And eventually a carrier stumbles on another one and they send out all their planes. You know, do they send out escorts? Do they keep a cap back? Um, but that's one of those games that I've always wanted to go back and revisit for the same reason as Harpoon is it did such a great job of re- recreating this sense of the uncertainty and the cat and mouse of naval combat. But I don't know if I would be able to go back to that. It was another one of those graphically Spartan you know, pre-3D card games. Uh, it holds up pretty well. Cares or holds up pretty well. We, we know uh, about- Go ahead. The whole cat mouse thing is interesting because I think that's what separates modern... One thing that separates the modern naval combat from the Age of Sail and the Age of Galleys is there's no fog of war until you get to the point where you can have enough distance to have a fog of war. And at that point, though, it, you say there's no fog of war, but it's all fog of war because one yeah. of the lessons of Harpoon is if you can see it, it's dead. Or if it can yeah. see you, you're dead. Uh, so, yeah, it's right. you're right. There's, there's the, the fog of war is, in a way, much less gray and more black and white and deadly. Uh, right. Yeah. Whereas before that, you know, you see the, the battle doesn't start until you can see the ships. And if you can't see them, they might as well not be there. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> Whereas in modern war, if you can't see them, you're screwed. Now, is it... Because... Oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's it. Is it is it Gary Grigsby, or who is it... Who's the wargaming guy who's doing these World War I uh, dreadnought combat sims? Uh, N- Norm Koger. Norm Koger, right, right, right. And his, uh, I'm ashamed to say this, has his game come out? I don't know this yet. I don't know if he's uh, actually done a game yet. He's done, he's done two. Oh, he good lord, I Rus- suck. Okay. And, and the Russo-Japanese, the Russo-Japanese War. Okay. And one on the Battle of, of Jutland, which just had an expansion pack. And they're quite good. I mean, they're, they're battleship wars. I mean, you don't have aircraft carriers here. So, you don't have the problem where you have, to send the planes out and refuel, and if to, if you can see it, you can kill it. It is, in many ways, uh, not that different from the Age of Sail, and that you have to bring your guns to bear in a ship you can actually see. Uh, but they hold up, they're actually very good. They're slow. They're slow games. Um, yes, you have diesel engines instead of the wind, but they keep you at a pretty deliberate pace. Um, but isn't this just, because this was always a... a a thing that I had a hard time with games that were just like battleship combats because it always seemed like just a big ship slugging it out with another big ship or a big ship just trashing several smaller ships that couldn't hold a candle to its firepower. Uh, how do uh, how do his Jutland and uh, Japanese Russo war games deal with that? Uh, by saying that's how it was. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if 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 the the Bismarck's coming up on a bunch of Canadian frigates, um, <laughs> those frigates aren't going to stand much of a chance. Um, I really wish there were more good uh, tactical naval games. I mean, the Norm Coger games are very good. I highly, highly recommend them. Um, I mean, I was I saw a PBS documentary. I think it's a BBC documentary, but PBS 
steals everything, about the Battle of, of Lepanto. Do you know the Battle of Lepanto, Tom? I do not know the Battle of Lepanto, but I like the sound of that. Tell me about it. Battle of Lepanto is one of the turning points of the Renaissance. It was a an alliance of the Pope and Venice and Spain versus Turkey. And he's the Ottomans. It's this huge galley battle. And you could point to it as being one of the turning points in European history because the Ottomans get annihilated by the new Venetian ships. They build these six uh, galleasses which have broadside guns, which is a huge innovation, broadside guns, instead of just fore and aft guns and boarding actions, which is what you had with galleys. And it's this wonderful, wonderful moment of leadership and blood and two big forces fighting against each other and the fate of the world in its hands. I can't think of any Lepanto war games. Now, here's a question. Can I game this in EU3? Um, you can certainly build the ships and have them fight it out. Uh, at a strategic level, you can, certainly. And you can you can build their galleys, and they can build their galleys, and they meet, and then you get the report. We but you their gloss fleet. over all the tactical stuff that you're talking about, right? Yeah, you don't get the tactical... At, at the strategic level, yeah, you can do a Lepanto at the strategic level in Europa Universalis Three, in uh, probably medieval uh, Total War to some extent. Um, at the strategic level, this sort of thing is probably been done to death. But the tactical level of, of galley combat, uh, there aren't any galley battle games. And that annoys me. I don't know why. I shouldn't. It's a very stupid thing to say. Well, but. I'm guessing, though, that like it, it's probably like the, it's the age of sail, but even more plodding. I mean, that's just what yeah. I think of. The fact that nobody, it didn't occur to anyone to put guns on the side of the boat so you could line up more of them. Were those people morons back then? I could have told them that. Well, the the boat, the galleys were generally lower. They had to actually build a bigger ship. This is before the galleon. Just build a uh, taller, like, mount for the gun. Why didn't they think yeah. of that? See, I should have been around back then. I would have been the Da Vinci of the day. I would have been like, you guys, your boats are low in the water. Build a tall platform. Put the gun on top of that. Put it on the sides of the boat. You're good to go. See? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think, too, Troy, of, uh, like... The galleys versus triremes is the early naval combat in Civ Four. <laughs> for for about until you get optics, you know that's that's the extent of of naval combat in Civ Four for the early part of the game. Uh, but then what happens in Civ Four? Civ Four's modern era has all of this awesome stuff about you know submarines and air power and. Uh, are there cruise missiles? I think there are, aren't there? There are now, yeah. Yeah. So and and all of this stuff comes up in the later parts of the game, which are always harder to reach, and you tend to get game fatigue by the time you've advanced your civilization to that point. Uh, but I loved how Civ tried to model all that. Uh, but, but yeah, up until then, your galley combat was just the fact that a trireme would kick your galley's ass, and, and that would be it. What do you way, think you- of the naval, the naval strategy in Civ? Uh, I think it's underutilized. Uh, How so? I, I just think that it doesn't... Um, they, they tried to mess with this a little bit with... Uh, it, it's something they tried to fold into the gameplay. For instance, with blockades. Uh, I think that was something that... Maybe it was the Beyond the Sword expansion, but that was something they... If I'm not mistaken, didn't they later fold that in? I don't remember if it yeah. was in there all along, but what, what could happen? No, it wasn't. Okay, so you could cut off coastal trade routes, and more importantly, you could starve a city by not letting it 
get resources from its ocean squares. And in certain cities, that's huge because they rely on that for both food and commerce. So you just put a ship there, you tell it to blockade, and it blacks out a series of, of coastal squares around a city, and those cities can't use it. So therefore, the city has to sally forth its own navy and kill the blockaders. Uh, so I really liked when they did that, but that was folded in later. Um, but then there are things like I, I never really felt the importance of things like carriers and air power against I, ships. Uh, it seemed like there was never a real reason to go to sea in Civ Four. Uh, like you, you, I would argue, I would argue in, in Civ Three, and that's because they took out the ability of ships to bombard land. Well, you in could, Civ Two, you, in Civ Two, you, you could attack a unit in a city, uh, you could you know, sell it. But in Civ Three and Civ Four, you could take down the defenses right. of it. But you can't well, actually attack, attack, right? But you couldn't destroy the units. Remember, in Civ Two, naval combat was huge because coastal cities could be threatened by a battleship at any time, right? And hit hard. And it's like a carrier as well because carriers could carry bombers, and they can't in Civ Four. They can just carry fighters, which makes them, you know, kind of stupid. Wow, is that true? You can't put a bomber on a carrier in Civ Four. Ouch! You know, you cannot, which is, uh, I think, a huge problem for making carriers actually useful. I only build carriers in Civ 4 if I get that event that says, you have to build carriers. Well, so you can, carriers are only like anti-air air carriers? Like, like, wow, that's huge. Okay. Well, you, you know, you can use fighters to, you know, bomb. Um, right, right. But you can bomb the fighters. You can, they're good for taking down infrastructure, you know, taking out gold mines or railroads or whatever. Basically raiding. Uh, yeah. You know, to bomb to take out, to cut a city off from reinforcements. That's always a good thing to do. Right. But as far as, you know, taking it on their ships or being actually useful in weakening a city, um, it's, I mean, battleships are good for taking down the defenses and the, of a city taking down the defense score to a certain level where your marines are useful. And that's great. And, but as far as ship to ship combat or actually posing a serious threat, um, so they destroy my, my my clam mines or my my clam fishing, I guess. Um, that's pretty much the most damage they're going to be doing to me. Most. Now, are you of the talking time. about Civ three, or you're also extending this to four. Civ four? Well, see, but, but see, Troy, I disagree because, like I said, in Civ four, the blockades can starve out a city. It's not just your clam mines that you're losing, yeah. but it's you've probably got a lighthouse in that city that adds extra food to each ocean tile. All that gets shut down, and when you have a bigger city, that starts reducing the population. So that, it's, I feel... This is, the, this is assuming the AI actually does that. I think it might. I could be wrong, it, but uh, yeah. It, it, I mean, do, it does, but, but very rarely. Right. And, and never sustain. It'll blockade a city and then move on and blockade the next city. Okay. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, in, in, in multiplayer, I mean, I, when we played uh, Civ Four for a Tom versus Troy... Uh, we played the next war scenario. Uh, oh, with stealth destroyers and whatnot, right, right. Yeah, we had, a, we had a lot of naval combat in that because there was quite a bit of blockading going on, right. as I recall. So overall, I do yeah. like the model. Uh, yeah. Uh, so let's talk about naval combat in real-time strategy games because yes. it is very fashionable. Uh, and I'm when I say very fashionable, I mean Bruce used to do it all the time to whine about... <laughs> When you're playing a real-time strategy <laughs> game, having naval combat be part of the game. Uh, so, and I, I feel that this is a valid whine for some 
RTSs, but I think right. other RTSs, naval combat is part of the gameplay. Uh, and if you're whining about it, you might as well say, we should take out cavalry. You know, I, I think in a good RTS, naval combat isn't an annoying sideshow. It's integral to the game progression and, and the economy and uh, the map control. Um, well, yeah, but it, having played against you and having had my villagers cut down by, by hussars, I'm all for taking a cavalry. <laughs> okay, well, we'll do a podcast on that, on, on cavalry and whether or not RTSs should have a no cavalry option. Okay, so what is the place? I mean, you're the RTS expert, and you write this great column uh, for Crispy Gamer on real-time strategy uh, games. So you are the expert. What is the place in general of naval combat in an RTS? What should it do? If you're going to have naval combat in an RTS, what principles should you have in mind when you design it? Well, there's a couple of things. First of all, any RTS is ultimately, uh, not any RTS, but ideally an RTS is ultimately about map control. And in an RTS that includes naval combat, that combat needs to somehow be tied into map control. And one way to do this is to put out at sea important resources, where if you forego building a navy, if you just cede the ocean to the other player, he's going to get an economic advantage by controlling more of the resources on the map. That's one way to do it. And most recently, uh, I've, I've played a few games of Rise of Nations, where Rise of Nations does that brilliantly. I mean, like, in any, R, any discussion of RTSs, somewhere at some point is gonna have to point out that Rise of Nations does feature X brilliantly, because that, that could be one of the most immaculate RTSs out there. But in a recent game of Rise of Nations, uh, we were playing on a random map, and sure enough, uh, an island map comes up where there are different islands and players start on their own island and there's other islands you can conquer and there's a lot of water on the map. So naturally some of the guys we play with start whining and go, oh, it's a naval map, no fair. Uh, and oftentimes these are the guys who have some land rush set up or something and, and it screwed up their tactics because now they can't just cross the map with a bunch of infantry. Uh, but what this also does is out in the water there are fish. You send out fishing boats and they give you food and gold. And there are also whales. And you send out fishing boats, and they go to a whale, and they give you food. And, and I don't understand the justification for this, but the whales give you iron. And on this particular map of islands, there aren't very many mountains on the islands. And mountains are where you get iron. So on a good naval map, and this is an example of one, you have to go out there and fish for whales. You have to go out there and, and whale, as a verb, uh, to get iron. Um, so I think that's an example of naval combat tied into map control and resources. Uh, what Rise of Nations also did was it took transport ships out. I mean, when you said you, the guy couldn't march his infantry across the map, well, in Rise of Nations, he can march his infantry across the map. Yeah, he can he once he has built a dock. Like, he has to then yes. allocate... Uh, right. so he has to basically unlock the capability. And the thing is... Right. Once his units are so, you, go ahead. And you, I'll, I didn't mean to steal your thunder, but well, it's just yeah. I mean, most real-time strategy games and most games in general, to move a unit over the water, you build a specialized transport ship. And, and not only you do you do that, but yeah, oh, you have to like click on it and you have to load it up with the dudes. The right click and the left click and make oh. sure they have enough. And it's mm. it's a it's a bit of a hassle, right. but you know it's it's the way it was in olden days. Uh, <laughs> And don't forget, uh, Brian you, have, you have to sail it where it's going, and then you have to unload it on the other shore, and and you have to like then in a safe place. back. What? 
If you, unload, if you unload them in a safe place, too. Right, right. Exactly. Uh, maybe otherwise, you don't know where that – maybe you don't have the place staked out. Maybe you have to go scout. I mean it's just so much – just terrible and they all get, micro. They're unloaded, and they all get jammed up in that one place, oh. and seven of them get, get killed by a single catapult shot. Oh, God, you're you giving know, me a headache just talking about it. Stop. <laughs> that's a – that, that, that's D-Day. I mean, that's how it is. <laughs> that's why D-Day uh, is so difficult, isn't it? Yes. Because unloading the transport. The logistics you know, of right-clicking been... on all those transports crossing from England. Oh, my God. <laughs> Eisenhower's middle finger wasn't very good at the right-click. <laughs> uh, but uh, Brian Reynolds, in his you know, infinite wisdom, uh, decided to say to hell with all that. And units are their own transports. They become weaker. They turn into transports. You build a dock. They can walk on water. They turn into transport ships. Every one is its own transport ship. It's weaker. It has no defense. It can't attack. Um, but there are, you know, dozens of them, so you can't target all of them at once if you're attacking them. You have to target each one individually, which means something might survive if it's not going too far. But the beauty of this, uh, right, is that if yep. this guy who's playing the Bantu, and if he's listening, he knows who he is, who's playing the Bantu, <laughs> hoping to send a bunch of his Bantu warriors to rush my my first city, he can do that, but he's got to sail those Bantus as vulnerable transports, at which point, since I know he's coming, I've got a navy, and my navy will effectively strain out half of the Bantu. It's like a net that's forcing him to waste resources to reach me. Uh, And so that's the brilliance of, of naval combat is... Sure, units can walk across water, but they become something else, and they're vulnerable to a navy while they're doing that. And right. and just bless Brian Reynolds' heart for coming up with that. I mean, why didn't someone come up with that before? And more importantly, all you people out there making RTSs now, why the heck aren't you ripping this off? Every time now I see an RTS that expects me to manually put a dude on a boat, sail the boat <laughs> overseas, unload the dude, I'm, I want to write an angry email Dear sir, please play Rise of Nations. Thank you, Tom. Uh, Especially the, the boats never sail right. Because I, I asked a couple of the guys who designed Empire Earth this uh, when I spoke to them a few years ago for Empire Earth 3. Uh, you know, why, why is naval combat broken in some of the RTSs? Uh. Cause, yes, yes. And, and they say, well, why are – because it's, cause the, it, it, it's about the, the r- r- rotation. Ships have to rotate. <laughs> they they sort of can't, spin. <laughs> they ha- and they end up spinning. But you, know, you can't just have them you know, magically go someplace. Uh, other units, you, know, you can just magically have them change face. But because ships are so big, to make them look good and look convincing, they have to turn, uh, which makes controlling them a real pain. Yes. And that's why it never looks good. Well, that's the pro- – yeah. That, with an RTS, though, you've got to – I mean, when you think about it, Troy, cavalry do the same thing. Uh, yeah. But because cavalry aren't each a big, huge, majestic structure like a, like a sailing right. ship is, you, you don't notice so much. But, yeah, that is a problem. And, by the way, another thing anybody making an RTS uh, with naval combat needs to do is they need to give me a key to select my entire navy. Because when I hit whatever button selects all of my military units, I, I don't want my navy in there. I don't want all my military units to be all of my infantry, cavalry, and sailing ships. That does me no good. Uh, I need a command to just select a navy. Just like any good RTS with air units, Supreme Commander, for instance, and it, Supreme Commander has this key, by the way, uh, I need to be yep. able to select all of my air units or all of my naval units or all of my land units. 
So, uh, and you know, I, Rise of Nations may not do that. I kept, while we were playing, I kept trying to look up. It doesn't do that? I'm pretty sure it doesn't. Oh, I'm, I'm about, I, I might have to say something mean about Brian Reynolds right now. <laughs> no, I'm not going to, I'm going to refrain. But, but that's another thing is that, uh, you need to treat a Navy as a separate type of unit in an RTS. And, and you also, your interface needs to address that, I, I think. Um, yeah, you have to keep it distinct, but you also have to keep it somehow linked. And I think one of the big problems with navies and RTSs is that they're either made too weak and ineffectual, uh, so they can't affect what's going on in land. Right. Uh, they're just there to escort transports. Now that's it. Right. Or they're made super powerful, uh, where they can just dominate everything that's going on. Or land. Troy, thinking, how about both? So one of oh, one of my I was thinking of the monitor ship in Age of Empires three exactly and Age, Age of Empires three has a brilliant uh, progression uh, with naval combat that folds into I mean there are so many things about Age of Empires three that I adore and, and I I'm so glad oh me too and I'm so glad this game like the the interface has been gussied up I mean this game has come so far since it was released but one of the early elements of the game that I deeply deeply admired and I still admire, is the way they modeled naval combat in an RTS without making it peripheral, without making it overpowered. And the way it worked is early on, you know, you might want to go out uh, to sea and, and use fishing boats to get food, but if the other guy builds a navy, he can knock down your fishing boats and affect your food economy. But early on, navies are very weak if you just build a, a tower near the coast. Uh, it will take out any ship, and no ship can really challenge it. So early on, navies can't hold a candle to, to land installations. So if you have fishing boats within the protective radius of a tower, they're fine. But what starts to happen in Age of Empires 3 as you go up through the game's four ages um, is you eventually get these monitor ships that you mentioned that have they're, – they're the closest thing the game has to a superweapon – in that there's a big old fat cannon on the bow of it, and that cannon can reach an extreme distance. On some of the maps, it can reach anywhere on the map, and it can pound an enemy base. So you're going along, you're playing a land game, you've got your farm inland, you're safe, the other guy has control of the seas, you don't care, you're still getting plenty of food from your farms. But if you let that go on long enough, his monitor is going to start bombarding your farms and shutting your food down from sea. So over time, the naval game becomes very important, and you can't really afford right. to ignore it. Uh, and I just love well, that that progression, uh, the way. It not to evolved. mention the the, uh, the other. I mean, I think the real super naval unit is is it the galleon, which ship. Ah, the yes, good point, Troy. It, and it, that is it, it, transport it, situation. Go ahead, yeah. Because it, it is a floating barracks yes. in effect, and it, it doesn't and a floating stable because it can build yes. both. Uh, uh, infantry and cavalry units can't build artillery, uh, but your frigates are your and monitor are the artillery. Uh, so it you can just build a couple of those, load them up, and just start churning out troops. Yeah, uh, it was it's, it's, almost, it's a beachhead. I mean, boy, we wish we had yeah. that at D Day. I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it was the galleon. Uh, so, you're right. It, it sails over. It just you park it on a shore and you just click and you buy your units and it trains them and it spits them out right there on the shore. Uh, yeah. So while we're but well, well, I mean can you think of RTS that have done it we've talked about two of that have done it reasonably well I mean I still think the monitor is super overpowered because it can just because well they're they're very expensive and you only build two of them I think and well, and you also so, Troy have to have uh, pretty much naval supremacy well naval superiority at the very least uh, you yeah. you have to have made it to the fourth age and you have to right. not you have to be able to control the seas. 
and a monitor is not a cheap ship. You're right. You can only have two. But I don't think it's over, it's overpowered if the other guy doesn't have any. But if you let someone right. get to the point where they've got monitors and you don't, you deserve, I think, to get your base okay. pounded. Uh, uh, do you think of an RTS that's done it super poorly? Uh, every other RTS that we haven't mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> so here's one of my favorite RTSs. I adore this thing. And, and it just did such a miserable job with naval combat. Uh, Battle for Middle Earth 2. You know, the Hobbit and oh, RTS. Yes, yes. Beautiful, beautiful game. And it was just so atmospheric. And it had such great gameplay with the interplay of normal units and spells and heroes. And uh, they they also were like, we're going to put in naval combat. And it was the same kind of thing where there would be a long-range artillery ship that could destroy units inland. Uh, and then they would also have basically suicide ships. Uh, I think the elves would go in and cause a whirlpool, which I don't know. Some Galadriel is causing a whirlpool. I don't know what the thing was. And the 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 evil ships would be fire ships that would be like suicide bombers or something. But it was just such a mess, and it didn't really fit. And there were only like three maps that had water. And oh god, I just as much as I love that game, they really and it was a big selling point too. I remember going to see the game in development, and they were like, "Look at our water," and it was beautiful water. And they were like, look at these, look at these ships we've built. And they were beautiful ships. And they were like, and we've got these gameplay ideas for it. And that, then it just collapsed. It just fell apart. Uh, so that was a huge disappointment for me because it was such a great RTS. And they were, they were just so clumsy with how to build naval combat into it, I thought. Yeah. There was a little known RTS called Act of War, which was unfairly written off as a Command and Conquer clone. Uh, it actually was kind of better. a Command and Conquer it's clone. Better. Yeah, exactly. It's better. It, it, it beat Command and Conquer at its own game, if you will. Uh, and uh, they did an expansion. What was it called? Maybe High Treason, or I forget. Anyway, they did an expansion. Was it Was it High Treason? That sounds okay. right. And it added naval combat. And they had really cool interplay of the units. You know, they had submarines, and they had missile frigates that would go inland, and uh, I remember it was kind of b- before its time, but what they did to make the naval combat is because they had these modern warships is they had to make huge, enormous maps with vast distances of uh, between the land uh, areas so that there was like room to play. Oh. And that, that was, I, I was, it was a drag on frame rates. Uh, the water stuff was really poorly optimized. It was... It was an interesting design approach that was poorly executed. Uh, but so the good news is these guys uh, are the guys now doing Ruse, which is an RTS from Ubisoft. And I I think, I don't know, does Ruse have naval combat, Troy? Do you know? I don't think so. Okay, well, in one of the promos, they show an amphibious landing. So for that reason, I was thinking maybe they were doing naval combat, but I don't know. But anyway, so those are the guys. They had an interesting idea with active wars naval combat that, that didn't end up working. Uh, what are some bad naval RTSs you can think of? You mentioned one earlier. Well, I mean, there's, there are quite a few, but I'm thinking of um, one that one that's kind of half half good and half bad. I think a lot of what you said about active wars, so really good ideas that kind of um, fell apart. And I'm thinking of Red Alert 3. Mm. Uh, which is not a very good game, 
It had a lot of interesting naval stuff. A lot of the resources were offshore, so you had to move your ships offshore. You had to defend them and protect them. If you wanted to keep your lead, you really needed to have a navy, which was great. And the navy could be powerful, and there were some amphibious units, uh, which made things interesting, except for the fact that uh, there were too many amphibious units. Right. It, it, I think that's kind of what broke the game. Like the one of the de- de- uh, was the Americans they had this Allied destroyer, which is also a tank. Yeah, it was this confusion between two different terrain types, and basically at any given time, like you know, two thirds of your units could be used in this type of terrain, and the, a third of them would have to stay behind. So, it, and it was just such a micro-intensive game, and it played so fast that yeah, I remember how frustrating that was. But there were some really good ideas, I thought, there, and I think they just blew it by first making the water just another form of land for so many units, uh, which kind of got rid of the whole specialization thing. I liked how it used air power in the water, and I liked um, having the commandos swim around. There's a great mission where the commando has to go and take out all these boats, and I thought that was nice. But uh, it fell apart for many of the same reasons the rest of the game fell apart. But once again, it's a game where there were so many nice ideas uh, that I think they just got wrapped up in the rest of the design idea, which is every unit should have 75 special powers. Right. And that uh, kind of threw the whole... Na- I liked the naval bit until I realized how redundant it was, how similar it was to the right. land. Uh, so many but ways. that's one, that's one uh, thing that, uh, w- once again, uh, Brian Reynolds brought to Age of Empires 3. When they did the Asian Dynasties expansion for Age of Empires 3, uh, and that was Big Huge Games, one of the things that uh, Big Huge added to the game was, hey, if we're going to put naval stuff in here, in this in this whole game where there's an interplay between progressively powerful naval units that ultimately can dominate the land map, let's do more to draw players out onto the water. So one of the things they did was they put resources out there uh, Age of Empires 3 had this awesome idea on land where you would have an explorer unit, and he would run around and pick up treasures that only he could pick up, and some of the treasures were, were little vignettes, like maybe a, a native unit was treed by a bear, so you had to kill the bear, and the native unit would join you. Or there was an outlaw hideout with some gunmen in front of it, and you have to shoot them, and then you can get the treasure out of the, the cabin that they're guarding. Uh, so what Brian Reynolds, what Big Huge Games did was they added similar vignettes out to sea. But because they knew that this wouldn't come into play until later in the game, they were much richer. So you would find, like, pirates guarding a treasure cove, or you would even fight, I think you would fight, like, great white sharks. Uh, yes. Yeah, and they would be guarding a wrecked pirate ship that had gold on it. Uh, but that was another example. It's put resources out to sea. And once again... Rise of Nations. Again, all things, all roads lead to Rise of Nations. The industrial age and Rise of Nations, suddenly oil becomes important. And on some of the maps, there's specifically a map called British Isles that's set in islands, and that once you reach the industrial age and you start needing oil to build units, all the oil was out to sea. So suddenly, you know, before you hit the industrial age, you had to know, look, I'm going to have to be able to control the seas to control the oil that I'm now going to need to continue building my army. Uh, so that that was another brilliant instance of what I think Red Alert really yeah. was trying to do, get people out to sea by putting resources out there. Which is a great idea, and it certainly got me out to sea just long enough to realize I did not enjoy the game. 
Uh, now, now before we wrap uh, up, Troy, there's, of course, one more game that does a brilliant job of balancing land, sea, and air combat. Do, do you know where I'm going with this one? It's another RTS. Empire Total War. Uh, please. <laughs> How dare you. Uh, you get one more guess. Uh, another game. Is it RTS, Brilliant, Air, Land, and Sea? Uh, you hear him? He's giving you hints. You've already mentioned the Supreme Commander. Don't we have it? We have? Yeah, you talked about having yet having the select all navy button. Oh, oh right, right, right. But, but it also had, you know, yeah. it just has a good balance between amongst air, sea, and land units. And then some of the, yeah. uh, there were two resources. There was power and I guess metal or whatever. Energy. But, but uh, some of the uh, the power and the, what is it? Energy and energy material. and material. Or? <laughs> I don't know what that was. Space junk, space metal. Uh, there you but go. there would be these resource nodes at sea as well as at land. Uh, so, and, and they just did such, you know, with the size of their maps, you know, what, what the expansion for Act of War was trying to do by making expansive maps where you, where sea was a different distance scale than land, you know, Supreme Commander had the engine to do that. Uh, yes. God, their maps were Their huge. maps were huge and they took advantage of it and it made for particular, it made for unique naval combat in an RTS that, that no other RTS really has been able to duplicate. Uh, All right. So. Yeah, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of good stuff with Supreme Commander. I've said many times on the blog, it's a game I respect if I don't right. love. Uh, it's really impossible to love it, I think. I know all the Total Annihilation people are going to go crazy when I say that. Uh, but it's this beautiful, majestic hunk of metal that I just can't embrace. <laughs> It, it, it may be the Iron Giant, but my heart's not big enough to love it. Yeah, that's a very touching analogy. <laughs> there you go. I'm just not a little boy anymore. Uh, we should talk. Uh, we want to talk a little bit strategic stuff. We don't have time for that. Maybe sometime later we can talk about uh, uh, Alfred Thayer Mahan's theory of uh, control of the sea waves. What on uh, earth are you talking? What was that? Alfred Thermahan's Alfred theory of the control of the Alfred sea waves. Alfred Thayer Mahan, uh, his big theory, how control of the seas uh, is the key to world power. What's this dude's name? Alfred Thayer Mahan. Isn't that Batman's butler? Yeah, it was his day job. But at night, Alfred was a military theorist. <laughs> Come on, Harvard boy, you never studied Mahan? No, I went. I have a degree in theology. We didn't care about that stuff. <laughs> That's so sad. Yeah, he's a 19th century guy. He wrote about how America's future was in was at sea, more or uh-huh. less. The, influ- the Influence of Sea Power on History, that was his book. I'm sure if Bruce was here, and, he would eat that stuff up. And you guys would have a wonderfully oh. erudite discussion. And uh, I would then bring up some, some dippy little movie. A, a fart joke. I don't do that. You know me better than that, Troy. No, it would be it would be an obscure movie reference, not a fart joke. Please yeah. give me more. That's that's Julian's purview. That's. <laughs> yeah, one of my uh, wife's colleagues wrote a book about uh, Mahan. I thought you were going to say about fart jokes. About <laughs> well, I think one of her students may have written a book about <laughs> fart jokes. Uh, we should probably talk a little bit about uh, Dominions, uh, even though we can have our little plan here. I was hoping we'd get two turns in this week, but people don't listen to me. 
which is why there are only two of us. And before we, uh, I only, only got one yeah, turn. But go ahead. Before well, go, well, we, since we don't have much to say about Dominions, I wanted to bring up something that uh, a little side issue that I that has yep. me tremendously excited. So I emailed Vic Davis recently just to bug him about how Solium Infernum is, is coming out, uh, is is coming along, uh, and he still plans to yes. get it out this year. But uh, after awesome. he told me that, he said something about, you know, and we're finishing up the manual and we're working on this, blah, blah, blah. So I emailed him back and I was like, would it, I mean, if you don't feel weird about this, could I read the manual? Would you send me a copy of it? And so he replied and he was like, yeah, sure, have a look. Here it is. We're still, you know, proofreading it and there will be screenshots and stuff in. So I got to read the manual for Solium Infernum. Oh, holy cats, I am so excited about this. It's yeah, really? a little hard to sort of reference what's going on without like the visuals and a look at uh, the, the game layout, but Troy, it has so many of these really cool integrated, like, board game mechanics. Like, it, it's like reading uh, a really man. meaty board gaming manual, for instance. Uh, and it seems like all of these cool, sort of intertwined victory conditions and resources, and, uh, I just, I got so, as, as somebody who loves manuals, I got so psyched reading the rough draft of the Solium Infernum manual. So... Well, we have promised to have uh, try to get Vic on uh, as soon as Solium Infernum comes out to make up for the fact that we've punted his episode. We know what we should do. When he comes on, Troy, we should have his voice recorded in the podcast as well. I, I think that's just... You know. His voice His voice was recorded. It was Julian's who was missing. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah. Oh. I thought we didn't record... Okay, well, in that case, we should also record Julian's voice as well. If he's here, <laughs> but yeah, I can't wait to get Vic back uh, because I, I just I, you know, I, basically I can't wait to start to play Solium Infernum and then after I've played it to talk to Vic about it. So there's a lot of exciting stuff uh, still to come this year in strategy Majesty gaming. Two next I week, uh, Majesty Two next week. We have Tropico Three coming October. out uh, in October. We have Solium Infernum. Um, it's shaping up to be a pretty good fall, I think. Are you uh, looking forward? Uh, I don't know enough about Tropico 3 to really be eager about it. Is that something that you're eager about? I like the original Tropico. Okay. Uh, but this is like, isn't this, this who's developing this? This is no one associated with, with uh, Pop. Uh, uh, no, it's uh, Calypso. And what did they do those, like, one of those Roman city builders this, or something? Uh, Calypso published... Uh, Hamamonts. No, I think it's Calypso, just the okay. publisher. I'm trying to think. Uh, or it was, is it 1C? It's doing Tropico 3? So a bunch of Russians. Uh, no, Hamamont. It is okay. Hamamont games. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I wrote, I wrote a post about how I didn't think they do a good job because the Roman games sucked. But then their last Roman game was actually pretty good. So And Tropico is such a sort of a whimsical fun. Like, you can't help but, but goof around when you're making a Tropico game. So hopefully that'll, you know, they'll, they'll sort of tap into that spirit of it. Uh, yeah, I'm 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 not looking forward to it, but I'm not not looking forward. It's a game that I want to return to. It's a world I yes, want to well return put, to. Well put. Yeah. And uh, so that'll be fun. I think we have a pretty good uh, fall coming up. Um, uh, Dominions three. I am moving towards Julian to kick his butt. Tom, how are things going with you? Uh, you know, Bruce is cowed for now. I've just finished uh, building a fortress on our border, and I was worried that I wasn't going to get it done in time before he jumped me with an army, but uh, it's it's built now, so I've got uh, a firm hold. I basically shut him out of the entry to the rich inner uh, provinces. So, you've got fortresses all over the place. From what my spies are telling me, me, I've have two. Oh, 
Yeah. No, you're right. I do. I have them in every province that I control. Yeah. Everyone. <laughs> so don't even think about attacking me. Everyone's got a fortress. Yeah. Not, not everyone, but everyone that well, I want. Well, maybe there's one that doesn't have one, but yeah, most of them. I've got fortresses. Just go somewhere else. You don't need to come over here. I've decided I'm going to try to win this game just by praying for victory. Just have my guys go along and spread the word and preach and preach and just spread it You're like turtling. that. turtling. Aha. I'm on to you. Well, turtling and raising as many monkey men as I can. <laughs> All right. I hope that works out for you. Uh, so, uh, no Julian this week, no Bruce this week. They were both uh, too busy uh, to be here. Um, they send their regrets. Uh, Tom, any last words? What is our topic next week? Next week, we're going to leap off of a thread on the quarter to three form, started by N. Lanza, I believe. Uh, what should a strategy noob do? If you wanted to get into strategy gaming, how would you do it? And so hopefully we'll have a discussion about how to get into various genres, what to approach, how to, how to approach the genre, how to get better at it. It's going to be our, our public service uh, for the week. That way I don't have to give any money to those people who keep knocking on my door. The more you know. The more you... Yeah, God. Uh, say goodnight. Good night, everyone. We did great. No hip-hop?